irreverent, entertaining, cool. You're listening to LA Talk Radio. You can support Sapphire Planet by visiting the online store at sapphireplanet.com. Welcome. Your journey is just beginning. You are now entering the Sapphire Planet. The Sapphire Planet. The New Horizons is an interplanetary space probe that was launched as part of NASA's New Frontiers program. Built by Johns Hopkins University. Applied Physics Laboratory, also known as APL, and the Southwest Research Institute, also known as SWRI, with a team led by scientists, engineers, technicians. The spacecraft was launched to study Pluto, its moons, and the Kuiper Belt performing flybys of the Pluto system and one or more Kuiper Belt objects. Kuiper Belt objects are also known as KBOs. New Horizons is the result of many years of work on missions to send a spacecraft to Pluto, starting in 1990 with Pluto 350, also the Pluto Underground, and in 1992, with the Jet Propulsion Laboratories, Pluto Fast Flyby. The latter inspired by a USPS stamp that branded Pluto as not yet explored. The ambitious mission aimed to send a lightweight, cost-effective spacecraft to Pluto, later evolving into a Kuiper Belt object mission named Pluto Kuiper Express. However, because of underwhelming support from NASA and growing projected costs, the project was eventually canceled altogether in the year 2000. Following the backlash from the cancellation, the New Frontiers program was established for missions that fit in between the big budgets of the flagship programs, 
and the low budgets of the Discovery Program. The Applied Physics Laboratory, with a team consisting of former Pluto Kuiper Express team members, won a competition to fund their New Horizons project based on work left off from Pluto Kuiper Express under the New Frontiers program. However, funding for the mission was not secured until after a financial standoff between the team and then-NASA Administrator Sean O'Keefe. After three years of construction and several days delays at the launch site, New Horizons was launched on January 19, 2006 from Cape Canaveral, directly into an Earth and solar escape trajectory with an Earth relative speed of about 16.26 kilometers per second. That's an amazing 58,536 kilometers per hour, or 36,373 miles per hour. It set the record for the highest launch speed of a human-made object from Earth. After a brief encounter with asteroid 132524, APL, New Horizons proceeded to Jupiter, making its closest approach on February 28, 2007, at a distance of 2.3 million kilometers, or 1.4 million miles. The Jupiter flyby provided a gravity assist that increased New Horizons' speed by 4 kilometers per second, or 14,000 kilometers per hour, or 9,000 miles per hour. The encounter was also used as a general test of New Horizons' scientific capabilities, returning data about the atmosphere, moons, and magnetosphere. Most of the post-Jupiter voyage was spent in hibernation mode to preserve onboard systems, except for a brief annual checkout. On December 6, 2014, New Horizons was brought back online for the encounter, and an instrument checkout began. On January 15, 2015, the New Horizons spacecraft began its approach phase to Pluto. On July 14, 2015, at 11.49 UTC, or 7.49 Eastern Daylight Time, it flew 12,600 kilometers, or 7,800 miles, above the surface of Pluto, making it the first spacecraft to explore Pluto. Hours later, at 05237 UTC, or 108237 Eastern Daylight Time, NASA received the first communication from the probe following flyby at the time expected. Engineering data indicated that the flyby was successful and the probe operated in all respects as expected.
The history of exploring Pluto was contemplated since its discovery by Clyde Tombaugh in 1930. One of the many possibilities for the Voyager 1 spacecraft, after its flyby of Saturn in 1980, was to use Saturn as a slingshot towards Pluto for a flyby as early as March 1986. However, scientists on the Voyager program planned a flyby of Titan during the Saturn encounter to be more important scientific object. A flyby of Pluto was impossible, as not only did the spacecraft make a close approach of Titan, it was also on a trajectory that slingshotted the spacecraft upwards out of the ecliptic. Because no mission to Pluto was planned by any space agency at the time, it would be left unexplored by interplanetary spacecraft for years to come. Shortly after Voyager 2 flyby of the Neptune and findings at Triton in August of 1989, scientists sought interest in a mission to Pluto and further studies for the existence of a Kuiper belt and Kuiper belt objects potentially similar to Triton. In May 1989, a group of scientists formed an alliance called the Pluto Underground. It was named in homage of the Mars Underground, another group of scientists that successfully lobbied for the restart of missions to Mars, following the lack of such since the Viking program. The group started a letter-writing campaign which aimed to bring attention to Pluto as a viable target for exploration. In 1990, because of pressure from the scientific community, including those of the Pluto underground, scientists at NASA decided to look into the concept for a mission to Pluto. At the time, it was thought that the atmosphere of Pluto would freeze and fall to the surface during winter, and so a lightweight spacecraft was desirable, as it would be able to reach Pluto before such an event would occur. One of the earliest concepts for the 40-kilogram spacecraft that would reach Pluto in five to six years. The idea was shortly scrapped, however, because of the infeasibility of miniaturizing scientific instruments aboard a spacecraft to that size. Another mission concept known as Pluto 350 was developed at the Goddard Space Flight Center Pluto 350 aimed to send a spacecraft weighing 350 kilograms to Pluto. The spacecraft's minimalistic design was also to allow it to travel faster and be more cost-effective, in contrast to most other big-budget projects NASA were developing at the time, such as Galileo and Cassini. Pluto 350, however, would later become controversial among mission planners at NASA, who considered the project to be too small and too high-risk. An alternative plan, which was was considered at one point, was to send to Pluto a configuration of the Mariner Mark II spacecraft, which would weigh 2,000 kilograms and cost only $3.2 billion, in sharp contrast to Pluto's 350's $543 million cost. While both projects competed for approval, Pluto 350 was far more favored by NASA planners, who were starting to adopt smaller missions such as Mars Pathfinder 
and near Shoemaker. The United States Post Office got into the act. In 1991, October, the United States Postal Service released a series of stamps commemorating NASA's exploration of the solar system. The series featured a stamp for all planets, displaying an image of the planet, and highlighting an associated spacecraft which was sent to it. The stamp for Pluto, however, depicted a featureless atmosphere, presented with the phrase, Not Yet Explored, in place of the name of a spacecraft. The stamps were unveiled in a ceremony at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Two scientists who attended the event World Space Foundation President Robert Stahl and JPL scientist Stacy Weinstein were inspired by Pluto's status on the stamp such that they started to inquire about the feasibility of sending a spacecraft to Pluto. Engineers at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory, inspired by the not-yet-explored status of Pluto, also started to put forward aside ideas about missions to Pluto. In 1992, with the help of JPL engineers and students from the California Institute of Technology, formed the Pluto Fast Flyby Project. The mission heralded the same ideology as the Pluto 350 concept, small in size and cost-effective in scope, so that the spacecraft would be able to get to Pluto faster and be affordable to develop and launch. Described as a radical mission concept, The mission would see two spacecrafts being sent to Pluto. Both spacecrafts were to weigh only around 35 to 50 kilograms each, and the project would cost less than 500 million to develop, excluding launch costs, of course. Faster, better, and cheaper approach than the Pluto 350 and the Mariner Mark II projects, it caught the attention of then-NASA Administrator Daniel S. Golden, who ordered all work on both Plus 350, Pluto 350 and Mariner Mark II to cease and shift all resources to the new Pluto fast flyby project instead. During the development of the Pluto fast flyby, however, there were multiple concerns from both NASA Administrator Golden and the mission's development team. As research and development into the mission progressed, The project's size, scope, and budget all expanded. Additionally, morale among the team and personnel working on the interplanetary missions was low following the loss of the Mars Observer spacecraft during its attempted aerocentric orbit insertion in August of 1993. The launch of the spacecraft were intended to be performed using Titan IV rockets, which would have cost $400 million each, thus raising the budget to over $1 billion. Because of growing budget constraints, the dual spacecraft concept was scrapped in favor of sending a singular spacecraft to Pluto. The project was still too expensive, however, in the eyes of Administrator Golden. As a compromise, an agreement was reached with the Russian Space Research Institute scientists in Moscow, in which Pluto fast flyby would be launched atop a proton rocket, saving NASA over $400 million in launch costs. 
The proposal was then forwarded to Administrator Golden, but he vetoed the proposal, recommending instead that the JPL look into the feasibility of Pluto fast flyby being launched aboard a smaller rocket, such as a Delta II. During the course of the late 1990s, a number of trans-Newtonian objects were discovered, confirming the existence of a Kuiper Belt. Interest in a mission to the Kuiper Belt arose to such that NASA instructed the JPL to repurpose the mission as not only a Pluto flyby, but also a Kuiper Belt object flyby. The mission was thus rebranded the Pluto-Kuiper Express, after briefly being billed as the Pluto Express prior to the revision of the mission. The weight of the spacecraft was raised again, this time to 175 kilograms, and NASA allowed further liberty with the project's budget. However, it was later decided by Golden that Pluto's Kuiper Express was of low importance and thus cut funding to the project drastically. Eventually, despite official selection of the scientific instruments, and the appointment of several investigators. Then Science Mission Dir- Director Edward J. Weiler ordered the cancellation of the entire Pluto and Kuiper Belt missions in 2000, citing growing budget constraints, which had plagued the project since its inception in 1992, and at the time of cancellation, had grown to an astonishing $1.1 billion. The cancellation of the Pluto-Kuiper Express angered most of the scientific community, which led to most groups such as the Planetary Society lobbying NASA for a reboot of Pluto-Kuiper Express or, at the very least, a restart of the mission to Pluto. Internal divisions within NASA, including its Scientific Advisory Council, also voiced, voiced support for a Pluto mission. In response to the back. Excuse me, backlash caused by the cancellation on the Pluto Kuiper Express. Weiler decided to inaugurate a new class of missions that would fit between the big budget flagship programs and the low budget discovery programs, creating a, creating a compromise for missions such as the former Pluto Kuiper Express, which proved to be too expensive for the discovery program. A competition was held in which NASA would select a mission concept to fund as part of the first mission of the New Frontiers program. Tom Kremigas, head of the Applied Physics Laboratory of John Hopkins Space Division, one of many entrants in the New Frontiers program competition, formed the New Horizons team with Alan Stern in December of 2000. Appointed as the project's principal investigator, Stern was described by Kringamus as the personification of the Pluto mission. New Horizons was based largely on Stern's work since Pluto 350 and involved most of the team from Pluto Kuiper Express. The New Horizons proposal was one of five that were officially submitted to NASA. It was later selected as one of the two finalists to be subject to a three-month concept study in June of the year 2001. Other finalists include 
Posse, which stood for Pluto, an outer solar system explorer, was a separate but similar Pluto mission concept by the University of Colorado Boulder, led by Principal Investigator Larry W. Esposito and supported by JPL, Lockheed Martin, and the University of California. However, APL, in addition to being supported by Pluto Kuiper Express developers at the Goddard Space Flight Center and Stanford University, were at the advantage. They had recently developed near Shoemaker for NASA, which had successfully entered orbit around 433 Eros earlier in the year and would later land on the asteroid to scientific and engineering fanfare. So then, in November 2001, New Horizons was officially selected for funding as part of the New Frontiers program. However, the new NASA administrator, appointed by the Bush administration, Sean O'Keefe, was not supportive of New Horizons and effectively canceled it by not including it on NASA's budget for 2003. Weiler prompted Stern to lobby for the funding of New Horizons in hopes of the mission appearing in the Planetary Science Decadal Survey, a prioritized wish list compiled by the United States National Research Council that reflects the opinions of scientific community. After an intense campaign to gain support for New Horizons, the Planetary Science Decadal Survey of 2003-2013 was published in the summer of 2002. New Horizons topped the list of projects considered the highest priority among the scientific community in the medium-sized category, ahead of missions to the moon and even Jupiter. Funding for the mission was finally secured following the publication of the report and the team was finally able to start building the spacecraft and its instruments with a planned launch in January 2006 and an arrival at Pluto in the year 2015. New Horizons is the first mission in NASA's New Frontier mission category, larger and more expensive than the Discovery missions, but smaller than the flagship program. The cost of the mission, including spacecraft and instrument development, launch vehicle, mission operations, data analysis, and education public outreach is approximately $700 million over a 15-year span. The spacecraft was built primarily by Southwest Research Institute and the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. The mission's principal investigator is Alan Stern of Southwest Research Institute. After separation from the launch vehicle, overall control was taken by Mission Operations Center at the Applied Physics Laboratory in Howard County, Maryland. The science instruments are operated at Clyde Tombow Science Operations Center in Boulder, Colorado. Navigation is performed at various contractor facilities, whereas the navigational positional data and related celestial reference 
frames are provided by the Naval Observatory Flagstaff Station through headquarters NASA and JPL. Kinet-X is the lead on the New Horizons navigation team and is responsible for planning trajectory adjustments as the spacecraft speeds towards the outer solar system. Coincidentally, the Naval Observatory Flagstaff Station was where the photographic plates were taken for the discovery of Pluto's moon, Charon, and the Naval Observatory is itself not far from Lowell's Observatory, where Pluto was first discovered. New Horizons was originally planned as a voyage to the only unexplored planet in the solar system. When the spacecraft was launched, Pluto was still classified as a planet, later to be reclassified as a dwarf planet by the International Astronomical Union. Some members of the New Horizons team disagree with the IAU's definition and still describe Pluto as the ninth planet. Pluto's satellites Nix and Hydra also have a connection with the spacecraft. Their first letters of their name, N and H, are the initials of New Horizon. The moon's discoverers chose those names for this reason, plus Nix and Hydra's relationship to the mythological Pluto. In addition to the science equipment, there are several cultural artifacts traveling with the spacecraft. These include a collection of 434,738 names stored on a compact disc, a piece of scale composite spaceship one, and the flag of the United States of America, along with other mementos. The most interesting memento being carried upon the New Horizons spacecraft is about is one ounce or 30 grams of Clyde Tombaugh's ashes, which are aboard this spacecraft to commemorate his discovery of Pluto in 1930. A Florida State quarter coin whose design commemorates human exploration is included, officially as a trim weight. (laughs) One of the science packages, a dust counter, is named after Venetia Burney, who, as a child, suggested the name Pluto after its discovery. Goals. The goal of the New Horizon mission is to understand the formation of the Pluto system, the Kuiper belt, and the transformation of the early solar system. The spacecraft will study the atmosphere, surface interiors, and environments of Pluto and its moons. It will also study other objects in the Kuiper Belt. By way of comparison, New Horizons will gather 5,000 times as much data at Pluto as Mariner did years before at Mars. Some of the questions the mission will attempt to answer are, what is Pluto's atmosphere made of, and how does it behave? What does it look like? Are there large geological structures? How do solar wind particles interact with Pluto's atmosphere? Remember, all we have so far 
before New Horizons is just a blurry, soft focus picture of a round dot. Specifically, the mission's science objectives are to map the surface composition of Pluto and Charon, categorize the geology and morphology of Pluto and Charon, categorize the neutral atmosphere of Pluto and its escape rate, search for an atmosphere around Charon, map surface temperatures on Pluto and Charon, search for rings and additional satellites around Pluto, Conduct similar investigations of one or more Kuiper Belt objects. Now let's talk about the design and construction of the New Horizons spacecraft. The New Horizons spacecraft is comparable in size and general shape to a grand piano, and has been compared to a piano glued to a cocktail bar-sized satellite dish. As a point of departure, the team took inspiration from the Ulysses spacecraft, which also carried a radioisotope thermoelectric generator and dish-on-a-box-in-a-box structure through the outer solar system. Many subsystems and components have flight heritage from APL's Contour spacecraft, which in turn had heritage from APL's TIMED spacecraft. The New Horizons spacecraft's body forms a triangle, almost two and a half feet thick. The pioneers have a hexagonal bodies whereas the Voyager Galileo and Cassini-Huygens have a deconal, hollowed bodies. A 70-75 aluminum alloy tube forms the main structural column between the launch vehicle adapter ring at the rear and a 6-foot 11-inch radio dish antenna affixed to the front flat side. The titanium fuel tank is in the tube. The RTG attaches with a four-sided titanium mount resembling a gray pyramid or a step stool. Titanium provides strength and thermal isolation. The rest of the triangle is primarily sandwich panels of thin aluminum face sheets less than 164th of an inch or 0.4 millimeters bonded to aluminum honeycomb core. The structure is larger than strictly necessary, with empty space inside. The structure is designed to act as shielding, reducing electronics errors caused by radiation from the RTG. Also, the mass distribution required for a spinning spacecraft demands a wider triangle. The interior structure is painted black to equalize temperature by radioactive heat transfer. Overall, the spacecraft is thoroughly blanketed to retain heat. Unlike the Pioneer and Voyagers, the radio dish is also enclosed in blankets that extend to the body. 
The heat from the RTG adds warmth to the spacecraft while it's in outer space. While it's in the inner solar system, the spacecraft must prevent overheating, hence electronic activity is limited. Power is diverted to shunts with attached radiators, and louvers are open to radiate excessive heat. While the spacecraft is cruising inactively in the cold outer solar system, the louvers are closed and the shunt regulators reroute power to the electric heaters. What about the propulsion and attitude control? New Horizons has both spin-stabilized crews and three-axis stabilized science modes controlled entirely with hydrazine monopropellant. Additional post-launch delta-v of over 290 meters per second or 1,000 kilometers per hour or 650 miles per hour is provided by a 77 kilogram or 170 pound internal tank. Helium is used as a pressurant with a elastomeric diaphragm assisting expulsion. The spacecraft's on-orbit mass, including fuel, is over 470 kilograms or 1,040 pounds on the Jupiter flyby trajectory, but would have been only 445 kilograms or 981 pounds for the backup direct flight option to Pluto. Significantly, had the backup operation been taken, this would have meant less fuel for later Kuiper Belt operations. There are 16 thrusters on New Horizon. Four 4.4N and 12 0.9N plumbed into redundant branches. The larger thrusters are used primarily for directory corrections, and the smaller ones previously used on the Cassini and Voyager spacecraft, are used primarily for attitude control and spin-up, spin-down maneuvers. Two star cameras are used to measure the spacecraft's attitude. They are mounted on the face of the spacecraft and provide attitude information while in spin-stabilized or three-axis mode. In between the time of star camera readings, Spacecraft orientation is provided by dual redundant miniature inertial measurement units. Each unit contains three solid-state gyroscopes and three accelerometers. Two adical sun sensors provide attitude determination. One detects the angle to the sun, whereas the other measures spin rate and clocking. Power. A cylindrical radioisotope thermoelectric generator, easier known as a RTG, protrudes in the plane of the triangle from one vertex of the triangle. The RTG will provide about 250 watts, that's it, 30 volts DC at launch and is predicted to drop approximately 5% every four years, decaying to about 200 watts 
by the time of its encounter with the Platonian system. The RTG model, GPHS-RTG, was originally a spare from the Cassini mission. The RTG contains 11 kilograms or 24 pounds of plutonium-238 oxide pellets. Each pellet is clad in iridium, then encased in a graphite shell. It was developed by the U.S. Department of Energy at the Materials and Fuels Complex as part of the Idaho National Laboratory, less power Less power than the original design goal was produced because of delays at the United States Department of Energy, including security activities that delayed production. The mission parameters and observation sequences had to be modified for the reduced wattage. Still, not all instruments can operate simultaneously. The Department of Energy transferred the space battery program from Ohio to Oregon in 2002 because of security concerns. There are no onboard batteries. RTG output is relatively predictable. Low transients are handled by a capacitor bank and a fast circuit breaker. But let me just say again, 200 watts, and that's the equivalent of 200 watt light bulbs in your house. Amazing. The amount of radioactive plutonium in the RTG is 24 pounds or 11 kilograms, about one-third the amount on board the Cassini-Huygens probe when it launched in 1997. In 1997, that launch was protested by some. The United States Department of Energy estimated the chances of a launch accident that would release radiation in the atmosphere at 1 in 350 and monitor the launch, as it always does when RTGs are involved. It was estimated that a worst-case scenario of total dispersal of onboard plutonium would spread the equivalent radiation of 80% the average annual dosage in North America from background radiation over an area with a radius of 105 kilometers or 65 miles. Now we need a computer. The spacecraft, luckily, carries two computer systems, the command and data handling system and the guidance and control processor. Each of the two systems is duplicated for redundancy for a total of four computers. The processor used for its flight computers is the Mongoose V, a 12 megahertz radiation-hardened version of the MIPS-R3000 CPU. Multiple clocks and timing routines are implemented in hardware and software to help prevent faults and downtime. To conserve heat and mass, spacecraft and instrument electronics are housed together in what are known as IEMs, or Integrated Electronic Modules. There are two redundant IEMs, including other functions such as instrument and radio electronics, each IEM contains nine boards. There have been two safing events that have sent the spacecraft into safe mode. On March 19, 2007, 
the command and data handling computer experienced an uncorrectable memory error and reboot itself, causing the spacecraft to go into safe mode. The craft fully recovered within two days, with some data loss on Jupiter's magneto tail. No impact to the subsequent mission was expected. On July 4th, 2015, 11 days, 11 heart-stopping days before (laughs) it reached Pluto, there was a CPU safing event caused by over-assignment of command science operations. It was the computers handled the problem with the help of engineers on the ground, and the the mission continued on with no problem. But boy, (laughs) that was a close one. Okay, so now how do we telecommunicate and handle the data? It's a very good question. Communication with the spacecraft is via the X-band. The craft had a communication rate of 38 kilobits at Jupiter. At Pluto's distance, the rate of approximately 1 kilobit per second per transmitter is expected. Besides the low bandwidth, Pluto's distance also causes a latency of about four and a half hours each way. The 70-meter or 230-foot NASA Deep Space Network dish are used to relay commands once it's beyond Jupiter. The spacecraft uses dual redundant transmitters and receivers and either right or left-hand circular polarization. The downlink signal is amplified by dual redundant 12-watt traveling wave tube amplifiers, or TWTAs, mounted on the under body under the dish. The receivers are new, low-power designs. The systems can be controlled to power both TWTAs at the same time and transmit a dual polarized downlink signal to the deep space network that nearly doubles the downlink rate. Deep space network tests early in the mission with this dual polarization combining technique were successful, and the capability is now considered operational. In addition to the high-gain antenna, there are two backup low-gain antennas and a medium-gain dish. The high-gain dish has a Cassegrain reflector layout, composite construction, and a 2.1-meter or 7-foot diameter dish providing over 42 dBi of gain has a half-power beam width of about one, of a one degree. The prime focus medium-gain antenna with a 0.3-meter or one-foot aperture and a 10-degree half-power beam width is mounted on the back of the high-gain antenna's secondary reflector. The forward low-gain antenna is stacked atop the feed of the medium-gain antenna. 
The aft low-gain antenna is mounted within the launch adapter at the rear of the spacecraft. This antenna was used only for early mission phases near Earth, just after launch and for emergencies, if the spacecraft had lost attitude control. The New Horizons spacecraft will record scientific instrument data to its solid-state memory buffer at each encounter, then transmit the data to Earth. Data storage is done on two low-power solid-state recorders, one primary, one backup, holding up to 8 gigabytes each. Because of the extreme distance from Pluto and the Kuiper Belt, only one buffer load at those encounters can be saved. This is because New Horizons will require approximately 16 months after it's left the vicinity of Pluto to transmit the buffer load back to Earth. So in other words, to get all the data back from Pluto flyby, it's going to take 16 months of transmission. Part of the reason for the delay between gathering of the trans- and transmission of the data is because all of the New Horizons instruments is body-mounted. In order for the cameras to record data, the entire probe must turn and the one-degree-wide beam of the high-gain antenna will almost certainly not be pointing towards Earth. Previous spacecraft, such as the Voyager program probes, had a rotatable instrumentation platform, a scan platform, that could take measurements from virtually any angle without losing radio contact with Earth. The New Horizons spacecraft, elimination of excess mechanisms, was implemented to save weight, shorten the schedule, and improve reliability during its 15-year lifetime. The Voyager 2 spacecraft experienced platform jamming at Saturn. The demands of long-time exposures at Uranus led to modifications of the mission such that the entire probe was rotated to make the time exposure photos at Uranus and Neptune similar to how New Horizons rotated at Pluto. What about the science payload? The New Horizons carries seven instruments, three optical instruments, two plasma instruments, a dust sensor, and a radio science receiver radiometer. The instruments are to be used to investigate the global geology global geology, surface composition, and temperature, and the atmospheric pressure, temperature, and escape rate of Pluto and its moons. The rated power is 21 watts, though not all instruments operate simultaneously. In addition, New Horizons has ultra-stable oscillator subsystems which may be used to study and test the Pioneer Anomaly 
toward the end of the spacecraft's life. Your journey is now ending. You are now leaving the Sapphire Planet. Goodbye from the Sapphire Planet. Own a piece of the planet. Now you can purchase Sapphire Planet merchandise online at sapphireplanet.com.